Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good morning, or perhaps good afternoon. If you can find a seat, that would be great. Welcome. I hope all of you had a wonderful summer. And welcome back to our first session of the 2013-2014 SACPA year. Today we're going to start it off with a rousing discussion. <laughs> Please make sure your cell phones are off. I'm Dr. Bev Mundell-Atherstone, and today's session is being recorded. Please put $11 in the basket for your lunch and have someone at each table verify the amount. As you know, SOCPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and we rely on contributions of members and our session attendees to continue its work. If you wish to be a member, memberships available are available from Lisa. <clears throat> Thank you to our partners, the University of Lethbridge, for support and distribu- distribution of notices. Thank you to Country Kitchen Catering, who is always able to put together a lovely lunch for us, and to Shaw TV for recording the sessions, uh, which you can see Sundays at 4.30, and to the Lethbridge Herald for their great media coverage of SOCPA and our other events. We will have 25 to 30 minutes for the presentation. Then we will have lunch, followed by the question period. So we hope that during lunch, you come up with good questions. We'll finish around 1.30. It's my great privilege today to tell you about Dr. Melanie Thomas, who is from southern Alberta and uh, not only attended school in this area, but also university. In fact, one of her first university profs, Dr. Harold Jansen, is right here. He was her poli-sci prof. Uh, She is now an assistant professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on the causes and consequences of gender-based political inequality in Canada and other post-industrial democracies. Melanie has published research in journals such as Politics and Gender, Electoral Studies, and the Canadian Journal of Poli-Sci. Dr. Thomas is well known to Lethbridge West residents, as well as during her first degree at the U of L and serving as Students' Union President, Dr. Thomas twice ran in the Lethbridge Federal writing for the NDP. Let's all welcome our own homegrown girl, now grown up, Dr. Melanie Thomas. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, I know that people are probably already hungry, so I will do my level best to stay on time. Uh, What I'm going to present here are a number of research projects, and I will show a bunch of images, and I will walk you through every single one of them. So if you see a picture on the slide and you don't understand it, um, don't worry. (laughs) I will try to unpack it for you. This motivates my research here. 
This is an image compiled by the Global Gender Gap Report. It's uh, compiled by scholars at Harvard for the World Economic Forum. And what they do is they compare women's outcomes um, relative to men's on four, uh, four things, health and wellness, education, economic outcomes, and political representation. Um, basically, if you have a one, that means that women and men are basically equal. And we can see this on the health and education sides of things for the figure for Canada. In Canada, women's economic um, equality is about 75% of men's. Um, what's shocking and what I describe as the most pernicious indicator of gender-based inequality on the planet is that politics one. So women in Canada are about, their political empowerment is about 20% of men's. Um, these are just numbers, um, so I'm not going to explain them. What I want you to focus on, though, is this bit right here. Uh, on one of the indicators that they use, so this is, they erroneously label this head of state. This is basically head of government, head of national government. Canada scores effectively a zero. This means that women in Canada have no equality relative to men on that particular indicator. Everywhere else you can see we've got uh, women in parliaments, women in, in cabinet here. They're, you know, 30, 25 to 30%. That's where equality is. We've got um, I think it's important to note, though, that on an internationally used scale of gender equality, there's part of it that Canada is absolutely zero at. So the question is, why in 2013 is women's political empowerment in Canada so low relative to men's? I'm going to offer three partial explanations. I, I don't want to say that this is the whole story because it certainly isn't. Um, but these are three things that have come out of my own research um, that I have done with some colleagues that explain in part why women aren't as represented in politics as are men. Um, the first has to relate to demand from political parties, so how many women parties actually want to run as candidates. Um, the second explanation relates to voter reaction at the ballot box, and this is one of my favorite things ever, and you'll see why when I come to it. Uh, and then the third thing is how we talk about women who are involved in politics. So we'll talk about demand-side explanation first. Um, the reason why I'm focusing on demand and not on supply, just as a note, is that in order for there to be enough supply for there to be gender equity in legislatures in Canada, at the federal level, you'd have to find 154 women from coast to coast to coast for every single political party. And I have to say, I am skeptical of the notion that parties can't find 154 women from coast to coast to coast who would be okay as representatives for um, public office. I'm pretty sure you could find 154 women who were just as good for office as the MP for Lethbridge, Jim Hillier. This is not a very high bar. So, like I say, it's not a high, like, this is, I say this kind of glibly, but you've, every, everybody from all walks of life deserve to have an elected representative that looks like them in a legislature. There are theories of representation that pitch this. So I'm not convinced that supply is the problem. This is why we focus on demand. Demand might be an issue because Canadian elections are zero-sum. Either you win or you lose completely. There's no, there's no partial bits about this. Um, some of the reasons why women are seem to be less electorally viable compared to men have to do with gender-based stereotypes. So women care. They nurture. There are mothering stereotypes that are loaded onto all women. Um, men, by contrast, are stereotyped as being intelligent, aggressive, assertive, competitive, 
Um, again, these are stereotypes. They're rigid. They don't necessarily apply completely to everybody. But the things that are stereotypically feminine are not necessarily valued as much in electoral politics as the things that are stereotyped as masculine. So the conventional wisdom is that women candidates are offered up as sacrificial lambs. This is the conventional activist women wisdom, and this was the conventional academic wisdom for quite some time. But more recent studies have said that there's actually no difference in the kinds of writings where women are nominated in. So they have as equal chance of winning compared to men. My colleague, Marc-André Baudet, who's at the Université de Laval in Quebec City, we looked at this and we were like, I think that the reason why, we thought that people came to the conclusion incorrectly. What other academic studies had done was that they had said, well, just look at the winner and the closest loser, um, and we'll see what the distance between the winner and the second place candidate is, and then they found that there wasn't much systematic difference by gender. We contend that this is an error. Um, activists will know that if you want to win a riding, you need to know how stable your support has been over time. You don't look at only the existing election. You look at how you did last time, and you look at how you did the time before. If your support hasn't changed and you're winning, um, then you know that your riding is safe, right? So you know that you're probably going to hold it in this particular election. If you are losing badly every time, you know that your support is also stable and you're probably not going to win this time as well. If it's changing, you'll pick up on that over the course of elections. So what we did is we looked at several elections back and tried to find out what happened when we looked at this by gender. So we characterize this as party strongholds and battlegrounds. A stronghold effectively means that a party is going to win it all the time. Support is stable and it's strong. Um, that means the reverse. Another party stronghold is that some other party has it. Their support is stable and strong, and your party's not going to win. A battleground means that you have to fight it out. It means that party support is changing, has been changing over time, and that it's a toss-up and that you have to really fight to win. Here we're looking at all candidates. Okay, so these are all candidates. These are men. These are women. Um, the bars go from the left. Another party stronghold, a battleground your own party stronghold. What we wanted to see is whether or not there's a difference systematically between men and women in these safe seats. A few things to note. Most candidates in Canada are sacrificial lambs. Most people who are nominated, women or men alike, um, they're not going to win. But notice the levels. Men, a plurality of men are sacrificial lambs. An absolute majority of women are sacrificial lambs. There's a significant difference between the number of men who are in safe seats compared to women. This holds for every single party, except the bloc. We don't know what's going on with the bloc. And to be honest, after 2011, we're not sure it necessarily matters all that much, but what's interesting to note is that for the conservatives, if they look at where men are in safe seats, they're either sacrificial lambs or they're safe. They're least likely to be in battlegrounds. The distance between conservative men and conservative women in safe seats is significant. If the Conservative Party of Canada nominated women to safe seats at the same rate that they did for men, 25% of the House of Commons would be women in the Conservative caucus alone. Total, we have 25% of all parties are now comprised of all seats in the House of Commons are women. So if you're part of the Conservative Party of Canada and you subscribe to this idea of equality of opportunity, that somebody who is a good candidate ought to be able to have the same shot to run um, in a seat compared to everybody else, y you ought to be concerned by this because it suggests that systematically 
candidates who are women don't have the same equal opportunity in the government party as they do compared to men. I should also note um, the NDP has had an affirmative action policy on its books um, since 1984 saying that 60% um, of women in open seats or 60% of open competitive seats um, need to go to women. And you'll notice here's the all NDP candidates and the NDP open seats. Part of this has to do to the fact that there are so few safe New Democrat seats in Canada. Um, but it's worth noting that even for the party that has an official affirmative action policy on the books, um, this doesn't seem to have that much dent on where the women candidates actually get placed. Uh, the Liberal Party of Canada talks a big talk about, um, at least especially under Stéphane Dion's leadership, about having a certain proportion of the slate uh, as women. And they did okay in open seats. In This is from the 2000s. So they did okay with that. But again, our overall conclusion is that um, no political party in Canada at the federal level gets to say that just because they do better on this measure compared to other parties that they're doing good enough. There's still systematic gender bias in where parties nominate women candidates. Um, the other thing that I should also note is that women incumbents are usually unsafe. So take Edmonton Strathcona, it's Linda Duncan. Uh, she's won that since 2006. Um, Conservative Party support in her district has not changed. So when we look at party support stability, she ought not to win that seat consistently. She ought to be, she's in a precarious position. She is a incumbent in another party's stronghold. So same thing has happened to a number of women in Ontario and the like. We think that supply is one of the main reasons why women remain underrepresented in Canada. The second thing I want to talk about is voter reaction to women candidates. And this is where I start running experiments, which if you are on from the social psych side of things, this will seem familiar, but for political science, this is pretty new. Um, one of the things that we did was we put a bunch of students, um, we basically gave them an internet survey, but what we did was we randomly assigned them to a number of conditions. So we basically said, hey, um, you could win a free iPad if you participate in a fake election, uh, and then we just changed the fake elections that we sent to them. Um, this is conducted with colleagues of mine that are at Wilfrid Laurier University and also at the University of Athens in Georgia. So here we've got the conditions that we have. Um, we ran six elections um, where we had candidates ranging from far left to far right, and what we did was we changed the ideological position and then the gender of the candidates. Um, I should say, when I say far left and far right, I'm air quoting this because what we did was we varied positions on healthcare. Healthcare is a valence issue in Canada. This means that everybody likes it. The question is just which party is going to be best at doing healthcare, protecting healthcare. The Canadians are very clear that they like it. Um, so the far left candidate just says we need to increase funding for healthcare. The far-right candidate says we need to privatize it completely. This is not necessarily realistic in the Canadian case because we know any candidate that actually explicitly said we're totally privatizing healthcare would never win. It's political suicide. Um, our center position, center-left, basically says um, we're looking to modestly increase healthcare funding. The center-right candidate says that they're looking to find efficiencies um, in how they actually do healthcare, which public healthcare workers will know is code for cuts. But it's at least code for cuts instead of saying we're totally privatizing everything. Um, what's interesting is that when we consider all participants together, um, the center-left candidate always wins. Overall, the center-left candidate always wins, and then the far-left candidate, far-left, always comes second. 
Um, the right-wing candidates, especially that far-right candidate that says that they want to completely privatize health care, they don't get support at all. This is not surprising. It's what we expected. Canadians like their health care. Um, what was also interesting is that we broke out participants by gender. W women didn't change their votes very much when we varied which candidate was a woman and where those women candidates were placed. The only time that women seemed to systematically move their votes a bit was when the lone woman in the race was a center-right candidate. So, um, oh, the one thing I wanted to note is that how we change this. So election one is all men, election two is all women, election three has two women in the middle, election four, two men, two women on the extreme positions, and then elections five and election six only has one woman in the race and we change whether or not they're center-left or center-right. So when we have election six, so this is the only woman in the race is in that center-right position, saying we want to find efficiencies in healthcare. Women were, that was the time that women were most likely to vote for that candidate in that particular position. Um, that candidate still finished third, but still there was a bit of a pull to support there. The real action comes from participants who were men. All of the real action is with the men. I want you to first note election number five. This is one right here. This is the only race where the center-left candidate loses. It's the only race where the only woman candidate is center-left. So when presented with the center-left candidate that most Canadians and most participants supported, when she was a woman and she was the only woman presented with three other men, participants who were men took a step to the left. That's the only time that this candidate won. Now, note, though, election three. Both women candidates are moderates. Then, men abandon that far-left candidate that they flock to over here. They abandon him, and they go to the far-right candidate. So when presented with two moderate women and two men on the extremes, men shifted in this study all the way to the right, saying that they wanted to privatize healthcare. Again, noting that that's the most unpopular position on the candidate slate. And then, look at election four, where both extreme candidates are women. So this is a woman and this is a woman. Men don't flock to the far right when it's a woman. Where they go is they go back to the center-left candidate. So when we vary the gender composition of an electoral competition, and the ideological position that those candidates take, um, we see action, but only when it comes to voters who are men. In short, if a voter is going to change their vote because of the candidate gender or because of the ideology associated with a particular man or a particular woman who's a candidate, the odds are the voter is actually a man. Um, we need to probe this further. I have no idea why this is the case. Um, so I'm open to suggestions if you have theories as to why this might have happened. The last thing I want to talk about is this. How many of you saw this particular study in the National Post that said that women were ignorant of public affairs compared to men? That is strong language. And what I find interesting, this is a screenshot from the National Post. There's a reason why I'm throwing this up here. It says women, especially in Canada, are ignorant of public of politics and current affairs compared to men. And then you see the photo, it's of the G8, and there are no women in that picture. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, is there, but she's not pictured. So the picture is women are ignorant about politics, and look, they're actually not doing it too. Now, 
what comes out of this, and it made all of the gender and politics people in my office, <laughs> all of my other colleagues at other universities, we were just angry at this study because it was one of these ones where it, we called it overreaching past the data. It would ask things like, what was the Copenhagen conference? And I kind of sat there and I, for a moment I was like, I am, it either has to do with the environment or NATO, because the current head of NATO is a Dane and Copenhagen's in Denmark. But I didn't know because I didn't think it was particularly important to my day-to-day -day political operation. And I'm a political scientist, and so I would have got that question wrong, which meant that I, as somebody who's got a PhD in political science, would have been ignorant of politics by their measure. So there's a problem with how they're measuring that. But this leads to a better, or to a deeper question is, what does it mean to be knowledgeable about politics? What does it mean to be ignorant about politics? Most of the scales that are used academically um, to define political knowledge, that you need to name people. It's like a political pop quiz. Who's the prime minister? Who's the governor general? Um, who's the finance minister? Like, just naming names. Um, you'll note, it's all men. So... <laughs> You know, that, that says something about what this traditional knowledge is like. The feminist critique of this is that you might not know who people are, but you do know how to access government programs and services. If you think that you've been discriminated against, you know to go to the Human Rights Commission. If you need a lawyer and you can't afford one, you know to go to legal aid. If you suspect a child is being abused, you know that you do not go first to the police. You go first to the social workers at Child and Family Services. I cite that question last because every time we pilot test these political knowledge indicators, all of the men that we pilot test it with saying, if a child's abused, you go to the cops. And the answer is, no, you go to the social workers. If you go to the cops, the cops will call the social workers, so it's like adding an extra step. But this is the thing. That's accessing government programs and services, and it's a different kind of knowing than just knowing names. So again, we conducted another experiment. What we did with this, and this is very new research, and so the results are still a little bit fuzzy, and we're still teasing them out, but what we did was we got students into a lab, we sat them down at a computer, and we asked them to answer a bunch of questions, and then read some things, and then answer a bunch of questions again. So the things that we asked them to read, um, either they just said, here are a bunch of questions about political knowledge, please ask answers to them to the best of your political ability, or to the best of your ability. That was our control group. We had a supply-side condition that said, as you might know, Canadian women are 52% of the population, but 25% of the political representatives. Uh, some people say this is just because women aren't interested in politics. A recent survey says that men are about 1.5 times more likely to say that they're very interested in politics um, than are women. So men are much more likely to put themselves forward as candidates. So in other words, it's women's fault because they're not interested that they're just not represented in politics. Um, then the demand side condition picks up on that first study that I showed you. So they said, again, 52% of the population, 25% of the representatives. The reason why is that parties don't nominate women at the same rate as they do men, for example. If you've got a safe seat, you're much more likely to get a man in it than a woman. So this is the reason why women aren't actually being elected, because they're not actually being placed as candidates in places where they can win. One of the things that's very interesting when we look at our full knowledge scale, we see a bit of a gender difference. This comes exclusively from our traditional political knowledge. So these were designed to be harder pop quiz. Who is the finance minister of your province? So we ran this in Alberta and we ran this in Quebec. Finance minister of the province. We were asking young people this. So we said, who is the prime minister of South Africa after apartheid was ended? 
we remember this. I have a very vague memory of it, but still, we remember these sorts of things happening. The kids that are born in 95, this happened before they were born. So this means that they would have to be kind of aware of political history to be able to answer that kind of thing. Um, so there is a, the expected gender difference there. Um, what was interesting is when we asked about practical knowledge. So again, these are students, so we're saying things like, what's the tax form that you need um, to get your tuition tax credits? T2202A. Every student who's filing a tax return should know that. They should. My mother has it memorized. <laughs> and the reason why I do is she would call me and be like, where is it? <laughs> By name. Um, things like that child and family services. Uh, things like... Um, yeah, what's not covered by your healthcare program? Is it physiotherapy? Is it an MRI? Things like this, actually accessing healthcare. There's no gender gap there. This says that the feminist critique of academic skills and measures of political knowledge are very well placed. Women might be ignorant of who actors are. That doesn't mean that they're ignorant of government programs and services. The other thing that's interesting is that when we vary this by condition, we see a bit of a gap forming. Or we see, well, like, we don't see too much of stuff that's going on there, really. Um, yeah, but those are what the, uh, yeah, we need to tease that out a little bit more. Anyway, um, the other thing that's particularly interesting about this, when we look at these conditions, when we cue the demand side, so the reason why women are underrepresented in politics, um, when we can pick this up by gender, right. Now I remember what I was doing. This just breaks it out by condition. Here we break it out by condition and by the gender of the respondent. So this is by this is traditional political knowledge where that gap is that we expected it to be. When we tell women the reason why they're underrepresented is because it's their fault because they're not interested, the gap shows up. The gap also shows up in the control group when we don't say anything about um, what's going on about women in politics at all. When we tell people that the reason why women are underrepresented, it's because there's institutional and systematic bias. There's no gap on the measure that we expect to find a gap. We think this might be because that narrative disrupts the traditional narrative about women in politics. So when we say the reason why women are underrepresented is because there's bias, that's not the traditional narrative. The traditional narrative is that women don't know anything, they're not interested, they're not the right type of people, this, that, and the other thing. So when we disrupt that, we disrupt that traditional gender gap. The other thing that's interesting is we also measured emotional responses to this because we think anxiety and negative emotions might be the mechanism at work here, that when you tell women that they are bad at politics, this makes them anxious about then doing a test. Um, what was interesting is that when we cued the demand side, when we said that women's underrepresentation was due to bias, they were the most emotional at that one. They reported the strongest emotional responses. Now, that said, here's a really interesting bit. Men consistently reported being more emotional overall about the political knowledge test than did women. How's that for a counter-stereotypical result? What I mean by emotional is that they were stressed anxious or worried. And so when we look at psych research, when they talk about emotional responses, they talk about these kind of stress-based responses. So these are self-reports, so they're not as reliable as actually like physiological measures of response that's, that's stressful, but still, we have to openly tell everybody that when we measure emotion in this particular context, men report being more emotional about doing a political knowledge test than do women. The interesting thing is that they were most emotional in the control condition. We suspect when they weren't told anything about 
women in politics. We suspect this might be because in the other two conditions, they were told that they were dominant in politics. And they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, I can, like, take a bit of the edge off. But when they weren't told that, they were the most emotional out of all of, all of the conditions. So that's the story thus far. Three potential partial explanations for why women remain perniciously underrepresented in Canadian politics. Demand from political parties, how some voters, notably men, react to women candidates in certain combinations and ideological positions, and then how we talk about women in politics. When we say that women are ignorant, this cues a very particular kind of thing that can have individual or effects at the individual level. Um, thank you very much for your attention. I hope I haven't kept you from your lunch too long. And I'm looking forward to your questions and comments afterwards. Thank you.